0: Welcome to Integrated Brain Health. My name is Dr. Robert Coben. I'm a clinical neuropsychologist and am board certified in QEG technology and neuromodulation. This is our Neuroscience Rounds podcast. You will get a glimpse into our training programs where we talk about neuroscience, technology, neurofeedback, neuropsychology, and other related matters. We hope this helps with your knowledge base and ability to intervene and help patients successfully. On to the podcast.
1: Hello, welcome to NeuroRounds. My name is Dr. Christy Snyder calling, and this is round 25. Today we will be discussing ADHD for the majority of the talk, but I will uh, go back and review a little bit of what we talked about last week. Um, because they're all related disorders that, require, that are, um, are involved in the striato circuit. So frontal, thalamus, striatum, which is part of the basal ganglia, we'll go into details. Um, OCD, trichotillomania, which is hair pulling, we t- all talked about last week. We started talking a little bit about Tourette's, so I'll review that a little bit today. And today we'll go into ADHD in some more detail. So again, this is the kind of the brain areas that we're talking about in the circuit here. Um, and um, you know, striatum includes the caudate, the putamen, and all that. Okay, so Tourette syndrome, just a review from last week, uh, might be related to OCD. Um, there are some forms that are genetically linked. Um, there's also some tick-related OCD uh, that um, involves counting, aggressive thoughts, symmetry, touching items, Motor tics involve blinking, coughing, throat-clearing, sniffing, and facial uh, movements. Phonic tics, so like or lelia, uh, which is you utter obscene words and curse words. And this is actually very rare, even though you'd see it often in the movies. It's not actually uh, as common as it seems. Okay, so we talked last week that it is very heritable. If someone in your family has it, you're 10 to 100 times more likely to have it than the average person. Um, It's more heritable for identical twins than for fraternal twins. There are some risk factors, such as advanced paternal age, Um, if you're non-Hispanic white. Males more likely than females. Um, If you had uh, some forceps, delivery, stress, or severe nausea during pregnancy. Um, If the mother used tobacco, caffeine, alcohol, uh, premature birth, or PANDAS. We also discussed PANDAS last week as well. Uh, Prevalence is about 1% of school-aged children, typically onset between 5 and 7 years old. You reach peak around 8 to 12, and usually the um, symptoms kind of decrease as you get older. Um, Some symptoms do persist into adulthood, but most of them uh, kind of die off. Um, We talked about some treatments. Um, Antipsychotic drugs and dopamine and also nerve feedback is also used. Um, One of the common treatments is um, SMR trending over CZ for theta-inhibit. Um, is one of the standard ones, but of course, here we always do unique protocols. So, um, we discussed how Tourette's could be impulse control disorder, that you are not able to stop these kind of urges to make these uh, behaviors and have these obsessions and compulsions. It might be due to functional uh, disconnectivity um, and some metabolic activity, so, between the premotor and cerebellum area and also the caudate and orbital frontal, so it can be from mid to front, and then front all the way to back. Um, there's also some involvement of the cingulate and dorsolateral prefrontal regions, precuneus and the motor, uh, primary motor cortex. If there's elevated activity there, it's usually, um, has been connected to, kind of being overly aware of what you're doing, so you know you have these ticks, but you're trying to stop them. Again, the precuneus is kind of situating yourself in your environment, so making yourself more aware. So Tourette's and ADHD are linked. Um, 60% of those with Tourette's also have ADHD, so it's pretty common comor- comorbidity. Uh, 50% of children with ADHD will also have a tic disorder, maybe not necessarily Tourette's, but some kind of tic. Um, the age of onset for ADHD is between four and five, or Tourette's is seven. And there has been some discussion of whether stimulants, medications cause or exacerbate tics. Um, the connection here is that the impulse of actions of ADHD, so you have these sudden, um, unpremedic- unpremeditated um, actions, unfiltered behaviors. Um, it m- might be prompted by a sense of urgency, whereas ticks are similar like that. Um, you have these stereotype movements and you're usually pro- prompted by some kind of urge that you have to make the movement. And so they think it's the problem with the neural circuitry and disinhibition or release of undesired uh, movements. Um, There is discussion that this is kind of two sides of a different coin uh, that's related to monoamine neurotransmitters, like dopamine, um, and the basal ganglia, frontal cortex, and thalamus. So stimulants like ADHD increased dopamine, uh, but um, these increased dopamine is kind of the problem of what causes tics. So that's kind of two sides of the different coins. so not to talk about adhd in particular um, it usually affects three to seven percent of school age children in order to be diagnosed with adhd it has to have symptoms before before seven years old Um, and then it it can die off as you get older but usually about two-thirds of kids who have adhd still have symptoms into adulthood there are three subtypes one is inattentive this is more common in girls than boys we're easily distracted. you for, um, forgetful or misplacing things. Difficulty staying on task. Um, hyperactive subtype is more common in boys and girls. Fidgety, impatient, impulsive, overly talkative. And then you can also have the combined or mixed type. There are different components of uh, symptoms and expressions that can ha- you have for ADHD. There is an affective component. You have lack of emotional control uh, or poor and inappropriate motivation. You also have attention or cognitive components that are related to executive function. So again, executive function is the ability to control attention and action in the service of goals. So this could all involve problem solving, planning, orienting, alerting, uh, cognitive flexibility, sustained attention, response inhibition, working memory. You have motor components as well, uh, poor motor coordination, poor handwriting, clumsiness, all this is related. There is a strong genetic contribution. So again, it's very heritable between family members, so 60 to 90%. The genes that are implicated are again in regulation of neurotransmitters, monoamines, specifically dopamine. There are environmental factors. So uh, maternal's alcohol exposure uh, can have structural brain anomalies in the cerebellum, and this usually does cause children to be hyperactive, disruptive, impulsive. Uh, actually, smoking, maternal smoking, increases your child's risk of ADHD by almost three so that's a lot. Uh, perinatal factors, low birth weight, again, pregnancy and birth complications, and postnatal factors are nutritional de- deficiencies, specifically omega-3 and eight, uh, 6 fatty acids, and then deprivation of social environments. So... Uh, one of the main theories behind ADHD is delay in structural brain maturation. So this is why they, they think that you have it more as a child and less as an adult, is that your brain certain areas just taking longer to mature than others. So some of those are again with this frontal striatal circuitry that I discussed a little bit earlier uh, that's important for executive function motivational control. So it also includes though parietal, temporal, motor cortices, cerebellum. There's also changes in volume and uh, this multimodal association cortices. So a few weeks ago, we did all the association cortices, the parietal, frontal. Uh, You can go back and review those if you want to review. But specifically here, we have the frontal lobes, premodal cortex, uh, posterior cingulate, um, anterior and medial temporal lobes, cerebellum, and the basal ganglia structures, which are really important. You'll see them time and again throughout this talk including the caudate, globus pallidus, putamen, and the ventral striatum. Um, So about those uh, sections, so there was a big study that compared the brains of 1,700 ADHD um, kids with 1,500 controls, normal controls, and they found a reduction in the volume of five specific brain regions, and what was the caudate nucleus, caudate's here. Um, And that's important because it stores and processes memories. It's important for learning. It helps you decide uh, how to behave given certain situations, what kind of outcomes you want to achieve. The putamen here uh, is important for movement and impulsive behaviors. Nucleus accumbens uh, is important for reward processing and motivation. Also the amygdala, which we all know is important for fear and emotion regulation in the hippocampus. Specifically, the striatum, which includes the caudate, putamen, nucleus accumbens, is important for the reward system. So it helps control motivation, reward, pleasure, helps process feelings and thoughts and experiences. So kind of put it in layman's terms. So typically, it sends one piece of information to the frontal cortex for you to process at a time. But in ADHD, what happens is, A lot of these signals are sent all at once and you kind of get random information that might not be important, and so it's really hard to focus on what is important. So again, ADHD is thought to be related to delays in structural maturation of certain brain areas, specifically in the frontal parietal uh, cortices. And the extent of this kind of delay in maturation depends on, of course, the severity of your symptoms and whether you're taking stimulant medications. So, um, ADHD kids who had um, the symptoms persisted to adolescence had thinner medial prefrontal cortex than those whose symptoms um, dissipated as they got older. Also, there was a thinning of the right parietal cortex throughout adulthood, uh, childhood in children with ADHD relative to controls. This difference did disappear if their symptoms uh, resolved as they got older. Um, the cortical maturation, between 12 and 16 was influenced by ex- exposure to stimulants. So if you do take stimulant medication, uh, there's not as much difference, so the, the volume isn't as thin as it would have been if you didn't take stimulant medication. Um, yeah, so you also see this in the um, right motor cortex, left ventral prefrontal cortex, right parietal occipital. Um, thinner in the unmedicated ADH children than in those who did take medication. So now I want to talk about the networks that were involved um, in ADHD. So we talked a lot in the first few rounds about specific brain areas that are responsible for certain functions, but now we're moving into how important the networks are uh, because it's not phrenology and the whole brain works together. So it is this frontal striatal cerebellar network here, frontal striatal cerebellar. Uh, It's a circuit that includes, of course, the frontal cortex. The, the lateral prefrontal, and they also go back to the premotor and the anterior cingulate, dorsal striatum, the caudate, and the cerebellum, which is important for movement. Um, these are important for executive function, response inhibition, um, interference, suppression, and working memory. Um, you also, what you see in these regions is reduced volume of some of these white matter tracts that we discussed specifically the cingulum bundle and the superior basilicus. Pys- you also see reduced activation in the lateral f- inferior frontal regions and the dorsal anterior cingulate, which is important for inhibition. Uh, you'll see the cingulate a lot once we get to the case studies at the end, too. Another network is the limbic frontal network. Um, it's important for mediating motivation and regulating emotions. Um, so you see the prefrontal cortex is um, linked to the amygdala, the hypothalamus, basal ganglia. This is all part of the reward system and its inhibition of impulses. So it's helping you kind of evaluate whether something you should react to it or you should not react to it. Um, and this whole network is um, not working functionally in those who have ADHD. You also had the parietal temporal network, which is important for attentional. So we talked a lot about how the parietal cortex is important for all kinds of attention, specifically spatial attention. Um, so you see in special working memory task, ADHD children have reduced activation of the right inferior parietal cortex. Um, ADHD adolescents, reduced activation of the superior parietal and temporal regions. Increased activation of medial parietal uh, regions. And when you see increased activation, this might be suggesting that it takes more effort, more cognitive effort for them to sustain attention than the average person. There are other attentional tasks that they vary in, so there's an oddball task. Uh, for adolescents, you'll see reduced activation in the medial parietal, uh, superior temporal, posterior cingulate, you see that again, uh, perihepocatal gyrus, important for memory, and amygdala for emotion regulation. Selective attention task, you see reduced activation in the superior parietal cortex, and also posterior middle uh, temporal gyrus. And so we see reduced posterior engagement of, again, the parietal cortex, and that's usually um, related to a general reduction in attentional resources. So they have less resources, put forth more effort, it's more challenging for them. Some more networks um, dorsal and lateral prefrontal cortex also includes the uh, motor execution, motor and premotor regions, and you know, posterior part of the uh, frontal cortex. It regul- regulates attention and motor responses. Um, so these kids will have more variable tri- trial to trial response latencies. So this is indicative of an immature motor circuitry. Um, you see a reduced neural inhibition of the cortical spinal tract, which we went over, we went over those, uh, those tracks. Um, also, during self-paced finger-to-thumb movements, ADH kids showed reduced activation of uh, contralateral motor cortex. So again, just more difficulty regulating their kind of motor control in general. And they are linking these um, motor control difficulties to executive control uh, difficulties as well. So again, um, another major role in ADHD is dopamine specifically. Uh, So what we see is there's too many dopamine transporters in the brain with not enough receptors. So dopamine moves too quickly for it to be processed. So one example, um, that I ran across is like a, lots of bottles in a jar that are thrown out to the ocean and it doesn't get to where it needs to go. I don't know, maybe, one or two might, but what gets there is not relevant or important. So just how messages are getting centered on the brain, what you get might not be important or relevant, and so that's again why these kids have such a hard time focusing. Dopamine is important for, again, the reward and pleasure center. It helps us predict how rewarding a task is. When you have insufficient dopamine, then you had deficient delayed gratification. So this is when we say, hey, if you sit down and do your homework now, you can go have something fun on the weekend, but ADHD kids can't properly evaluate how fun going out on the weekend will be, because right now, they want to play video games or whatever, so they have a hard time evaluating this kind of reward um, structure for delayed gratification. So this makes it very difficult for them to sustain motivation and to stay motivated. Specifically, the mesolimbic dopamine circuitry is affected. And this is, uh, goes between the ventral striatum, the hippocampus, and the orbital frontal cortex. Again, important for reward-related decision-making. So how important is this information? What is the reward uh, if I did this behavior versus that behavior? So the typical treatment for ADHD is, of course, medications, stimulant medications. Uh, like methylphenidate increases dopamine signaling in the brain, it blocks dopamine reuptake, increases the extracellular levels of dopamine, um, and the synapses also dextroamphetamine, increases activity of dopamine and norepinephrine, and increases the level into the synapse. Um, so that's how those drugs work. Uh, but of course, you could also use neurofeedback to treat ADHD. What we usually see in EEG studies of ADHD is elevated theta, which is 4 to 8 hertz um, in the frontal central areas. And a common um, treatment protocol is SMR training to decrease theta and increase beta. Um, You see different ADHD profiles for different kinds of ADHD, though. Uh, So you can see excesses with delta, theta, alpha, and beta. Usually, they've tied elevated beta to symptoms of delinquent behaviors, and elevated frontal alpha has also been linked to uh, markers of obsessive behaviors. Uh, We've also seen poor connectivity between the posterior cingulate and the medial prefrontal cortex, so poor connectivity, Um, and then you see dysfunction for inattentive ADHD linked to the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, which is a core node in that uh, network we've been talking about and the combined subtype of ADHD as related to dysfunction in the default mode network, which is obviously what we uh, record here when we do our EEGs. So we're gonna go over a couple case studies, just kind of show you some different ways, different kind of cases we, of ADHD we get, so how we treat each case independently. And so I said there are standard protocols, but that's not what we do here. Everybody is, is unique. Um, so in this case study, we have a 20-year-old male He was diagnosed with ADHD as a senior in high school. Um, He was prescribed some medications, but they didn't seem to work for him. So he came here and had some neuropsychological testing. And then we found in his testing that his uh, full-scale attention was mildly impaired, uh, specifically visual attention, auditory response, visual response control, and sustained auditory attention um, were impaired in his neuropsychological test. So these are his brain maps. So again, we do independent component analysis here, so we're trying to find our parts of the brain that are uh, contributing independently to the EEG, and these dipoles are the regions that are uh, indicating that. So um, we can see a lot of visual processing back here, occipital lobe. We have somatosensory um, and three, and we have some Wernicke's area, so speech-related. Cingulate is also involved. Also notice, for his eyes closed, a lot of elevated theta. So we discussed how that was a uh, usual marker. And it's not only frontal, it's pretty much global here for him. Uh, for the eyes open, um, we see again, going down the central line, we have a little bit of frontal action, uh, but mostly SMR, uh, sensory motor strip here, visual processing, and along the posterior cingulate as well. So you see that it is, does kind of correspond to what we saw before. Um, but for their um, protocol, what we found is we wanted to definitely work on the sensory motor strip that was indicated by the dipoles, uh, the cingulate. We had some visual processing and attention all here. And we're also inhibiting that theta that we saw excesses of. So he did, uh, this is one protocol, uh, 12 sessions. And after this, you see over here that the theta is still high, but it is a reduction. So that's good. His self-report indicated improved attention and focus and much improved concentration. Um, We did a lot of the neuropsychological testing follow-up. Follow-up is orange, initial is blue, and you'll see they all improved substantially. Uh, Sustained visual attention, uh, sustained auditory attention, visual response control, auditory response control, Um, these all improved, objectively speaking. Uh, We also saw improvements in connectivity. So, what we also measure is how well one part of the brain talks to other parts of the brain. And then we do that for short range, so parts of the brain that are closer closer to each other and parts of the brain that are longer away from each other. So, for the eyes closed, we saw a 34% improvement in short range and a 20% improvement in long range communication. And for eyes open, we also saw improvement. As much, but still pretty good. 12% 12% improvement for short range, and 9% improvement for long range. So this protocol worked really well um, with this individual. A slightly different kind of case, a 10-year-old female um, came in, had symptoms of poor focusing, difficulty staying on task, following more than two-step instructions, regulating behavior. She's speaking out of turn, interrupting her teacher, and she was just kind of overall disruptive and hard to manage. So for her, um, for her brain map, again, we see a lot of stuff going over the central medial lines, visual processing, kinda, maybe a little bit of cerebellum, motor control, cingulate, motor uh, cortices here. Same thing over here, we've got motor processing, cingulate, like here posterior, and then visual processing. We also did a spike review on this person, and there were spikes over P7 and F3 indicating abnormal function in those regions. So P7 is here-ish, F3 is kind of here. So they have a very different protocol. So again, ADHD gives it one size fits all. Uh, The reason why you're having trouble focusing or impulsive could be, you know, maybe you're not processing the information coming in visually, which is occipital, attention, you know, parietal, impulse control is frontal. So this is why we look at each individual. Uh, This person, again, we want to inhibit parts of the brain that are uh, the frequencies that are excessive, which we're doing here, and then we have covered here the, um, the occipital kind of visual processing, going back, and again, it was mapping onto what we see areas of dysfunction in their specific brain map, and we're essentially trying to get the front and the back to talk to each other, so we're working that whole frontal striatal cerebellar circuitry as well. So she did one round of protocol. so it's usually 12 sessions. And again, there was lots of improvements for her. Uh, there were no evidence of spikes at the follow-up. Uh, the self-report, which was actually done by a parent because she was a minor, showed improved uh, focus. She was better able to vo- verbalize her feelings. Um, lots of uh, neuropsychological testing improved. Um, so initial is, is dark gray, retest is light gray. Uh, tension, full-scale tension improved. Uh, the red is really impaired. Green is average, the blue is superior. Uh, somatic relationships improved from uh, impaired to superior. Uh, Visual response control, auditory response control, so a lot of impulse control uh, measures. Visual attention, auditory attention, sustained attention, all improved significantly with this protocol. Again, you see improvements of connectivity as well. Uh, For the short range, uh, improved 71%, so that's quite substantial. Um, for this kid. And long range improved uh, 38%. Um, Improvement so that initial is blue, orange is follow-up, lower is better. Um, So these are great protocols that worked really well uh, for these two individuals. All right, thank you very much.
0: Thank you for joining us today. Feel free to subscribe to the Neuroscience Realms podcast for future episodes. You might also enjoy our sister podcast, Let's Head On, with myself and Dr. Ann Stevens, where we discuss the interaction between neuroscience, neuropsychology, and physical and mental well-being. Please feel free to reach out to us at IntegrateBrainHealth.com.